Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the JT Fox Podcast Network, and we are here to help you. That's what this show is here about today as we profile some of the biggest A-list celebrities in the world, Pacino Stallone, Mark Wahlberg, some of the biggest billionaires in the world, and some of the biggest sort of game-changing entrepreneurs. And in order to get, you know, what does it take to succeed and to learn and to take our businesses, our lives to the next level as well. And here today, we have a very famous one uh, who is the founder of um, uh, and got involved in three companies, which all of you will probably uh, know, Priceline.com. You remember the uh, Shatner commercials, uh, Booking.com and Ubid.com. And he's involved in so many different projects with entrepreneurs all over the world, as well as an amazing children's charity as well. And he's focused his life is I made a lot of money. So now let me give it all away. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Definitely looking forward to talking to you. So let me ask you a question. What is your net worth, Jeff? <laughs> no, this inside joke, Jeff and I were talking really right before this this question as well. So uh, there's inside joke to that as well. Obviously, the companies he sold have sold for billions and billions of dollars as well. So, so Jeff, um, before we go into the story, because your story is pretty much all over the internet, and we'll do a little recap before, but I want to start with so many people now today will start a website, right? We just, I just had a a call where everybody kind of pitches me deals. And one of them had a, you know, said, I'm the next Amazon. It's a construction kind of app where, you know, people can book construction workers and it's going to be amazing. And my valuation is 10 million. It's going to sell for, for billions of dollars. Right. And I feel like everybody who starts up a website and app thinks they're going to sell for billions of dollars. Um, you've done it three times um, with three different companies. Let, let's talk about how, how hard realistic it is right now to start something from scratch in today's market economy, to start something from scratch in that space, right? That's going to make billions of dollars. So first of all, I'm really glad that you asked that because I hear what you hear. What I hear is everything's the price line of something. We have the price line of pharmaceuticals. We have the- I, I, I hear the Uber. I hear a lot okay. of the Uber of things, right? You hear, yeah. I'm the Uber of this or I'm- the Okay. Like, and, and so I get all of those and, and you're right. You know, what's ironic, JT, was that we wound up building the, you know, people today talk about the unicorn, the billion, the billion dollar company, uh, uh, you know, uh, booking holdings today, that company is worth $105 billion. Never, but here's what's interesting. Never did we sit down and say, we're going to go build the next multi-billion dollar anything. What we said, in fact, I have this saying you've probably seen. I always tell people, don't chase money, chase excellence. Uh, money follows excellence. And so these people that are talking about building these multi-billion dollar, the next this or next that, that distracts you from the only way you're ever going to get there, which is to go out and create something amazing. So every time I've started a, a business, our focus has been heads down on excellence. We didn't talk about billions of dollars. We didn't talk about being the next whatever. What we said was, let's go create an amazing business right here where we're launching it and, and grow it organically from there. But if you don't create amazing, amazing product, amazing service, nail your marketing, it does, your, your dreams are never going to happen anyway. So our focus, it, it, again, it's interesting. I hear all these people talking about what you said. And then if you check on them, statistically, most of them don't make it. And yet the ones that made it never started out by saying our goal is to make it. I, I agree product. with you. I've met yeah. a lot of billionaires. And they all said the same thing. And, and see if they agree. Agree with my reasoning here. The first $100,000 in the bank of starting a business is 100% related to your work ethic. I think if people work hard enough, call enough customers, you should make $100,000. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, absolutely. 
Then you start getting to the sort of 100 to a million and it becomes 80% you, but your ability to hire people to in essence, delegate the stuff that you shouldn't be like the, the, the work that doesn't make money so that you can focus more on customers, Absolutely. partnerships and relations. Yep. Now we get to the $10 million mark and now it becomes 20% you and 80% your people having people because you have more products, more ideas, big organization, and starts becoming more less about you. You become more of the idea person. Uh, and then it trickles down to the implementation of your team. Would you agree with that? So I am so glad you said that because uh, here's what I hear. Oh, yes, I 100% agree with that. Here's what I hear all the time. People say, Jeff, I'm working harder and longer than I ever have before, but I'm not getting to the next level. And I have to tell them that's because you're in the way. Uh, my, For me, success didn't start until I realized that a big part of my job is not running the company. It's spending my time finding the best people in the industry, surrounding myself with people smarter than me and getting out of the way. So you are right. We didn't grow until we realized that we needed to go find all the rock stars, best people in your industry, talk them into working for you, and then take care of them so that they never leave. You are, you are right on, man. And then when I got to nine figures myself, I said, I spend 100% of my time on the 1% that matters, i.e. Yes. building relationships. Like we were talking about potentially doing business or just feeling yourself out because, you know, that's what I do. Right. And, and I have someone that reaches out. So I, you know, we met, we don't remember where, but we met. <laughs> Obviously it wasn't that important. You're not on my <laughs> cell phone. So what I either didn't make a good impression or you didn't make a good impression, but Priceline would have had me there. So I, I must have um, must have not happened. But I spent 100% of my time on the 1% that matters because the 1% is building relationships continuously, 20% coming up with marketing, bring ideas, and 10% using facts, numbers, and statistics, managing the business by the numbers, right? The, what, what one of my business part calls unit economics, knowing your numbers so that you know like, can I do this? Does it make sense? I think there's too many people who spend money without saying, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, okay, you want to hire this person, but what's going to be the ROI? And, and I think people don't look at the numbers. I think they just kind of spray and pray. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. In fact, one of the smartest decisions I ever made was I hired a guy who was a finance guy and I hired him just to build a model of my business in numbers. Cause I don't know how to do that. I'm actually a, mar I'm a marketing guy, even though my degree is in software engineering. It turns out that I sucked at it. I found that out as soon as I hired a couple of rock star developers and they asked me to stop helping them in my own company. They're like, dude, could you stop writing code because you're slowing everybody down? So I became a marketing guy despite my degree, but finance isn't my thing. And one day I said exactly what you said. If I could see my business in numbers and I could, what if? I could say, what if I doubled this? or spent less on that, or you know, increased revenue here, what does that do? And so when I hired this guy, Glenn, to build a financial model of my business that I could play what F games with, it dramatically changed everything. Running the business by the numbers and the data is critical. Last one, billionaire. They say it's 50% uh, uh, your people that you have, 1% uh, you, and 49% luck. Right time, right place, right opportunity. And every billionaire said the same thing. I got lucky. It just, this happened and this took off. And one could argue with Tesla, the battle with Fisker, right? If you watch that right. documentary, that if his battery was not the choice of battery, you know, VHS, beta, there's so, you know, uh, you know Blockbuster, Netflix, right? It all comes down to a certain amount of luck, um, which I think, I think you can get the nine figures with skills, right? If you have that acumen and that intelligence, right? It's not always guaranteed. 
although everybody's a nine figure and a billionaire on social media um, these days, but there is a le- right there is a level of, of luck, right? And so let's take it to Priceline, which became a billion dollar company. Was there an element of luck? What was the turning point of Priceline.com? Which so explain the, the I'll explain the model. Maybe you can um, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, there explain them. What was the business model of Priceline.com? So the the business model was actually originally uh, created by a guy named Jay Jay Walker, who had this idea that in that you could basically harvest consumer demand and sell it to supply. Most of the internet was seller driven. What I mean by that is, let's say you want to buy a pair of shoes. You have to go find every website that sells shoes. You have to see if they have the ones you want. Then you have to see if they have the size. Then you have to see what the price is. Then you see if they're in stock, how much is shipping. You're doing all the work. And and the idea that Jay had when he first called me and some other people uh, was, what if we just find out what you want? I want a pair of red running shoes and I have $50. And we got all the $50 shoe buyers and we sold them to the supply. We'll buy a thousand pair of $50 shoes right now. Who wants it? That was his idea. And he called a small group of us and said, let's build it. So what we, the innovation was buyer driven commerce. The timing, you are 100% right. Uh, that was at the beginning of the internet. And I meant the luck part of it. Um, I might have given more than 50% credit to the team, right? Because we just had the best people. I was walking down the hall one day in the early Priceline days, looking at these people and saying, if we were in a different industry, JT, we'd probably still win because we just have the best people here. But I completely agree with you with the luck part. And those turning points can come from, I'll give you one that was that was just luck. Um, we had, I had run into, this, this is a random story, but I was jokingly hassling an, an older woman in a restaurant because she stepped in front of me to, at the, at the desk, they said, who's next? And she stepped in front of me. And I jokingly said, actually I was, but this woman seems to think she can just step in front of me. I was messing with her. Turns out of all things, this is your luck story. This woman, her son's on TV. Her son's Matt Lauer at the time of the uh, Today Show. And so she and I start talking. I tell her what I'm doing. A short time later, Matt Lauer is discussing on the Today Show in front of millions of people for free, this really cool new idea he heard about from some guy that his mom met in the restaurant. That is a string of luck that all of a sudden, our story is being told to millions of people on TV that if those series of random events hadn't occurred, that never would have happened. That obviously was worth way more than than money we had for marketing. Got millions of people hear him talking about it and saying, "I got to go check this thing out." Luck happens. It's interesting because I remember using Priceline in the early days of my speaking career. Um, I made I already made real estate, but I was still frugal. And so what I did, I did Priceline because I would bid for a certain yep. hotel, right? And that was like it was like, "Can I get the good deal?" Right <laughs> now, I, I don't do it. Not that I would like a good deal. I just don't. They give you the worst room or not the best room and you have no status, right? And then, you know, so I get to, (laughs) I don't want to wait in line and be like, sorry, we gave you the floor and the second floor everybody parties. But would you say that the different levels of, so you exited, so you got involved with this person, right? And so I I want to put this in perspective. So this person created this idea, you came in and what was the arrangement between both of you and the company? Sure. So here, here's kind of how the founding team worked. And it was just a small group of us. It was a team of people. It was Jay's idea that he patented that reverse auction, the make an offer, name your own price. Back then, process patents were new. So Jay had a patent 
on the you naming your price. It was called a reverse auction patent. Um, but Jay's an inventor. And so here's what we decided, JT, that there were three types of people, inventors, builders, and operators. So inventors constantly come up with a cool new idea, but their skill set is not turning it into a company. That's Jay. Um, I'm in the middle, and it's the reason that he reached out to me in the first place. Um, if you give me a good idea, I'll build a company out of it. And, and you know, I can take it to profitability. So my job, so we were all on this original founding team, um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> we were broken into these three groups. We have the inventors coming up with the ideas. We have the builders turning it into a company, creating product, writing software, setting up marketing, right? Hiring people. And then at the end, after that, it turned out that we needed operators because once a company is up and running, I'm not the guy that's going to spend the next 15 years sitting at a desk looking at spreadsheets. None of us were. So of that founding team, we weren't really the operator type. So that was the arrangement. We had a group of founders split into kind of three teams. Somebody come up with the intellectual property. The, 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 the other group will build a company out of it. And the third group will run the company once it's stable. So in terms, right, <clears throat> I find now more than ever that finding partnerships like this is very hard to, so Carson has my idea, my this, you come in on the outside, it wasn't your idea and everyone should have a specific role. Uh, but when you're not in the majority position, there are people who start, you know, like for example, you have great ideas. How, let's say you have great ideas, you know, it's going to work. It's going to be an amazing idea. And the partners are not listening to you. It's not their air of expertise, but it's yours. And it creates friction and you are not in a majority position to overrule everyone. Thus, when you know your craft very well, you know marketing, you know branding, you know building, scaling, and, and it's not being done, it creates that resentment. Later on, they come back and say, oh, maybe you've been right, but they don't want to apologize. And I find that it's harder and harder to find business relationships that coexist um, where egos are not necessarily out of the way or people like, what's my company, mine, 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 even though that we all know that often the people that start the company at the end result, other than FedEx with Fred Smith, there hasn't been, the companies are today are not usually founder led, you know, yeah, Bezos, yes, Musk, but there's a lot of people that they exit at some point. So how do you um, deal with that and address that? Because it is an issue with a lot of people. So but I, I, again, I completely agree with you. Um, I made the mistake now in that instance, in the Priceline instance, we all have the same vision and we never, we didn't have that. Everybody agreed, everybody saw the opportunity and the vision, and we all agreed on building the same thing. We had a regular Friday executive staff meeting just with the small group. We actually were, were split into different groups. We had three CEOs because we had three operating units. So Jay was one, I was one of the CEOs. We had another guy. So we'd have our three CEOs of our three operating units and we'd have a weekly meeting. And because the opportunity was so big and so obvious to us, we never thought about it. So that was good, but to your point, um, I uh, can tell you another company that I was building that I brought in a partner, a co-founder, and regretted the hell out of it. And then the divorce is impossible. We had it started to disagree on things. We had different core values, how to treat people. And so I tell people now, before you bring on a partner to your idea, the first question is, what exactly do I need that I can't do myself? And could I hire that? The mistake I made is I could have just hired the guy instead of making him, bringing him on as a partner. Because once he was a partner, like you said, I, I didn't have sole control anymore and I couldn't make the decisions when I, when I knew he was wrong. So my lesson was going forward, 
I didn't automatically start businesses with partners. My first question is, could I hire or contract the things I need from that person before just bringing on a partner? Today, it's popular to get a co-founder. And I tell people, I don't know that you need a co-founder. You just need the tech developed and you could probably pay somebody to do that. So for people that are listening, think about that before you just bring on a partner. Do you really need a, a, a partner, a co-founder, or could you actually just do this? Uh, could you hire what you need? So Priceline got, ended up acquiring Booking.com, I believe in 2005, correct? correct? Uh, you were still involved in the company at that point? Um, yes. Okay. And what was the sort of the strategy of, and by the way, is Priceline still Priceline or has it been bought up by somebody much bigger? No, no, no. It's still, um, the, the parent company is actually now renamed it from the Priceline group to the Booking group, Booking Holdings. But uh, no, it's still uh, one big public company that has Priceline, Booking, Kayak, OpenTable, a number of companies in it. But it's all one company under the name Booking Holdings. So why did you exit? Um, because we got to a point where we weren't, remember I, I said earlier, I'm a builder. And we got to a point where we weren't building anymore. The travel part of the company, it, you know, uh, throughout those early years, we actually launched five companies, not just the travel company was one of them. Um, that's why we had multiple CEOs. We hit a point where when you when we IPO and you're public, now the public's like, this travel company's making a lot of money, don't do anything else. And we had other ideas. We were going to do Priceline, the model for groceries. We were looking at it for maybe buying houses. We were looking at it for uh, the fuel, the gas market, all these other opportunities to take the buying model. And now we're public. And this is the downside of going public. You don't control your destiny anymore. And now you have public shareholders, a public board that has to approve everything. And they're like, just sell hotel rooms, quit building anything else. Well, for me, I can't just sit at a desk all day and read reports. Um, I wanted to continue building other things. So uh, I left. Actually, um, pretty much all the founding team, all the originals left around that same time period because uh, people wanted to go on and build or do something else. It's just different when what you're- year, what, what year was that? Uh, oh man, I don't even remember now. I'd have to go back and look because people kind of trickled out. But uh, also- uh, for What, what me, year I, did you leave? Um, I don't know what that was. Oh, four, oh, five, maybe. Oh, wow. So that's a long, that's like. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> when, uh, when also the, like I said, the public company thing, you know, later I did that again with UBID where I was the CEO of a public company. And that's a different life than being a CEO of a private company. I did not, in fact, love that. Most people say that. So what about the people saying, well, I have aspirations going public. Tell them the, the negatives and then the pros of going public. And it's yeah. worth it at the end. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the two obvious pros, one is you raise a lot of money for your company literally overnight. The morning you go public, you suddenly have money in the bank to run the business. So it's a fast access to capital. Um, and then obviously it's an exit strategy for everybody because you're, I think our founder shares were 80 cent shares. Um, and the day Priceline's IPO was the third largest IPO at that time in market history. Uh, they thought it was gonna open at $6 a share. Uh, and, you know, the founders have 80 cent shares that opened at uh, $16 a share. Uh, and by uh, 4 p.m. that same day, the shares were at $81 a share. So that's. But you, but you had a lockup period, right? You couldn't sell uh, yeah, your shares. Yes. Was, that, was it six months or two years? Uh, the first sale is six months, 180 days later. It's All a right. two year. Oh, it's over two years. Over two years. Yeah. The first time you can sell is six months later. But 
from then it just kept on going up from 81. I think at the end of six months, uh, <clears throat> it was around $160 a share. So the stock kept going up. You know, today it's $2,900 a share. The stock kept increasing in value, even though people had a lockup. But so that's the upside. The downside, of course, is that now you're a public company. There's all these rules like the Sarbanes-Oxley, the SOX compliance, where it used to be you could be out with somebody and they would see you stop at Starbucks and they're like, let me get this. And when you're a public company, you might actually, I'm being uh, half serious, half joking. Somebody says, can I buy your coffee? And you're like, I don't know if I'm allowed to accept it as an officer of a public company, right? There's all these rules because you have a fiduciary responsibility uh, for the value of every shareholder stock. So every dollar you spend, every decision you make, uh, people have the right to question. Why did you buy a large coffee with the company's money? Right. And you're like, fine, I'll just pay for it myself. It, it, it again, I'm giving a silly no, example. But, I'm saying, but, but how, how come they're not yeah. being questioned? Right. A lot of these corporations have five, six jets. I mean, I, I remember Jeffrey Emma G, G, he'd leave on a jet and there's a jet that follow him in case that jet something happened to it. Right. <laughs> so, um, something Carl Icon, um, you know, where $18 billion, the sort of the, the renegade green mailer, um, basically said you know there's so much wasted and i'm sure there's tons of wasted with new building and nobody seems to do anything about it so in a way like on one hand it sounds practical but on the other hand it's not really being effectuated because there's probably a lot of fat too many vice presidents and it's always interesting right because when the company doesn't do well or as well they cut people and then the stock goes up it's almost like they do that just to have a like they're reactive to the stock <laughs> market to the price of the stock right and so so although it seems that but there doesn't seem to be much accountability on these companies I, I, I that bothers me all the time. I agree with you. And and you're right in that when when people are making money and the stock's high, they're like, take three jets. We don't care. Just keep making us money. And then when a company's not doing well, they're like, why are you flying at all? Why don't you drive? You don't seem to care about my money. So it definitely ebbs and flows with whether or not you're making people money, without a doubt. And, but I agree with you that there's, you know, uh, it, and it, it changed it to some degree, right back then, everybody was rolling high, everybody was in the money, nobody cared. Company, remember, internet companies were throwing million dollar parties and no one was complaining. They just wanted an invite. Imagine today, if you said, we're taking a bunch of shareholder money and we're just throwing a giant party and we're paying a rock band and you can't- Well, it happened with Microsoft at Davos, they paid what, $1.5 yeah. million for Sting, um, <clears throat> right? They, they So there is that, you know, that, that, I'm sure it still happens. It's different mentality between private and coming. And did you sell out of all your shares uh, or did you? Yes, how long but before uh, you got rid of yes, but uh, dollar cost average, right? You, you sell, you sell over time, you sell a chunk and then another chunk. Why, then why then sell at this point? Or did you not think that it would go as high <clears> as today? Cause if you would have held okay. on. And uh, if I had in a million years ever thought our stock was going to go to $2,900 a share, that's what values a company at 105. You ever do the math of if you had hold on to all your shares? And I did you that sold. once and I almost threw up. So I'll never do that again. And everybody made, you know, more than anybody ever dreamed of anyway. Right, right. That, because even then, uh, you know, I, I think uh, one year after the IPO, the company was already at market cap of 22 billion. So everybody taking their chunk of that is already. Right. And insane. back then there wasn't too many companies with that. Now it's like a tr $2 trillion dollars. Crazy. You know, three three trillion dollars seems. Uh, <clears throat> Isn't that insane? Do, do you think that Apple's valuation that of two three two three I said almost three now trillion dollars is actually a, a, an accurate valuation for? I Apple? don't I don't think so. But keeping in mind that the market 
is so based on emotion and media and people, you know, the, the people buying the stock that drive it up to that have never read Apple's financial statement and they have no idea how to read a cash flow. And it, it's all, you know, as you know, it's they all, all have an iPhone though. <laughs> it's all done on emotion. So should their value be extremely high? Yes. Should it be that? Um, I have no math to prove that. Is, is it the same thing with Elon Musk in a way, Tesla, that it more has an emotional, <laughs> you know, Bill Gates been trying to short it for the longest time. And then he was on the good side and ended up being on the bad side of it as well, because psychologically it just makes no sense based on the numbers it has. But how much of this, everybody doesn't look at what something does now. They look in the future, but most companies don't make it in the future. Yeah. So, so. I, I, yes, they're buying the story. It's like a Hollywood movie. People are, are buying the story and the emotion and they're buying what they wish and they hope will happen someday. Maybe Elon's going to buy Mars, right, and build the first subdivision there. Whatever they think, uh, that that drives the decision making. It's not financial analysis. So let me ask you a question. One of the things that I advocate that I think is probably <laughs> one of the most important things, but underrated, is the power of branding, right? I mean, Priceline.com is 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 a brand and it's, it's memorable and and things like that. And and I think a lot of people think that a brand is a logo and a polo and. And so what is your view on branding? And, and so obviously when I have money, I'm going to brand and there are ways to brand with no money, but at the end of the day, you have to write a check to get branded, right? There's like yes. that thing that, yes. you know, like, okay, I'm, I want to get brand new Subaru. It's going to cost me $6 million, $6.5 million for 30 seconds. And, and, you know, that's my shot because, you know, and I think a lot of people don't spend money on branding. Um, you know, they just think, you know, and then complain that they're, they're not successful in getting noticed because it is anyone can start any business overnight online. Now I can literally start any business overnight. I have a website, you know, so thoughts on, on, on branding. Yes, for your another question. I'm really glad you asked. Um, because By the way, that's because you're too busy talking about the D word that you told me the other guy was talking about. So you're talking about, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I can't say it because I don't want to say it. But <laughs> it starts with a D. <laughs> and it with a dough. Uh, so you could just fill in the words in there before. Um, That's, that Jeff did an interview with us and the interview started talking about that. So, um, which I'm so glad we are not. You're, you're just, you're nailing the right things for us to talk about here. So I am, when you and I were talking before this, uh, one of the things I spend most of my time now on, on my nonprofit and charity work, but one of the classes I still love teaching that I teach around the world is branding um, because I am a massive believer in it. it at one point, uh, Priceline became, according to the Brand Institute, the second most recognized brand on the internet. We don't think that was an accident at all. We think that was exactly what you said, an intentional decision to spend money on brand. What I Part of what I teach in that class is that marketing is linear and brand is exponential. And the difference is when people talk about the hockey stick, stick of growth, JT, when you, when you wanna increase your numbers, increase revenue, increase sales and grow, you know, you double your marketing budget to double your sales, you triple it to triple it. All that's very linear. You got to keep buying more marketing. Um, and it's outbound. The more people I market to, the more of them will invent, will come look, and then some of them will buy. But brand is exponential because brand is the tipping point between outbound marketing and inbound. Brand is when people you spent zero dollars marketing say, whoa, I heard of you spent brand money, no doubt. But it wasn't the direct marketing. They heard about your company. They understand what your company stands for. By the way, you mentioned uh, Fred Smith from, I actually learned this from spending time with him when he talked about your brand promise. 
His brand promise, everybody remembers, was, quote, when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. And so people are sitting there holding a document saying, man, this absolutely positively has to get there tomorrow. And someone said, oh, you must be thinking of FedEx. Well, that person had never seen a FedEx ad, but they were like, FedEx, what's that? That's inbound. I didn't spend any money marketing them, but my brand messaging is so strong that everybody's hearing about me and they're calling me. So exponential growth happens when it doesn't come from outbound marketing dollars. It comes inbound. They're calling you because they heard about you. The only way they'll ever hear about, well, the second way, I wouldn't say the only way because marketing does that, but spending money on shaping a brand and a brand message is how you hit that exponential growth. So glad you asked that. How is AI going to change companies like booking.com, priceline.com? <laughs> Um, you know, are the AI mechanisms there going to hurt websites like this? Because in AI, like, hey, give me the top 10 locations where I want to go. Um, you know, it's refining. Or these companies like Priceline, Booking.coms, Kayak, uh, Expedia, they've already kind of start working with AI ahead of the curve. Or are they behind? And is AI a threat to that industry of website where right now you have to search and connect where the point where this is what I want. And then it just, kind of does it for you, just kind of like AI. So what's your thoughts on that? So actually both, um, meaning that uh, everybody's scrambling to layer this AI, uh, you know, uh, assistant on top of these websites. But I had an interesting meeting um, uh, with uh, with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. He was just backstage, asked me to speak at their big annual conference. And I was talking to him. And you know what he told me that was interesting? Today, you use an app, you use Priceline app, booking app, whatever you use, right, uh, to go out and book your travel. But what he actually said to me is, my goal at Microsoft is that within, I think he said about two or three years, that all apps will disappear because you only have an AI layer. And instead of pulling up a, an, a Priceline app or pulling up a Marriott Hotels app or anything else to look for what you need, you'll just say to the AI on your phone, I need to go to New York, get me the right airfare and the right hotel because it knows you. And where does it search? How does it find it? You won't even know anymore, right? It will know, it will look at all the sites or it'll look at all the hotels. So he actually said, we're gonna try to get rid of apps and just layer AI between you and your phone so you don't have any apps anymore. The only reason you need an app is to get access to data. But if your AI knows where to find everything, so I think it is a threat. Um, and I also think it's an opportunity for the companies that move fast enough. So let me answer. So I had a discussion with my CEO yesterday of I've made a lot of money on, I wouldn't say earned income because there's all kinds of investments, but buy, turn, sell, buy, turn, sell. And we haven't done ourselves, right? We've invested in other companies, hope and pray, and some have worked out great. Some, eh, you know, not that I've lost, but just the, I think their working relationship of building something for a massive exit, right? And we know there's a lot of capital sitting on the sideline, but when you have a mentality just like ours, where I can measure my time and how much money I make every single day, every single hour, every single minute, then you go into the, okay, now I'm gonna build something. I'm probably not gonna make money for three, four, five years, but at the end, there's a potential, not an expected, and that's the difference right. with me, a potential pot of massive gold at the end, but there could be anything. Now that you've, you've done the, you know, make very little money with a big exit and worked a lot of companies, seeing businesses on the world, what would you recommend? Like, what, what is the best strategy? Just like, take care of yourself, keep making that income and, and or so, 
you should go in for that, that deep dive and building that company, put your head down and hope that you have the big exit. There is never that, that guarantee. Correct. So uh, I, I get asked that one a lot. And I mean, more on a one-to-one basis. And actually it's more me asking because I see somebody spending those years where they can't take any money out of the company. They're struggling. Their family's upset at them, their friends, because all they do is work and they're not making any money. People that make that decision. And I always have to stop and ask him. So my answer to your question, by the way, is it's extremely personal. What is your goal? What are you trying to do to your life? What do you need? How much is enough? Right? And so there are people that are doing this for two reasons. One of the reasons is that they're they're really see that I might be the lucky one that hits that pot of gold and builds that billion dollar unicorn company. So I'm going to keep, I'm willing to take my shot. But some of them, it's not even that, JT. They're so passionate and they so believe they're right and they want to prove that this thing's going to work. And it's it's as much about being right and proving it and being passionate about changing the industry or the world as it is about the money. Um, so it's just very personal. Then I, I of other people that are sacrificing everything, ruining their lives, ruining their health for that one in a whatever shot. Like you said, the, the numbers are low, the number of people who are ever gonna hit that unicorn status. And so I have to say to them, why are you doing this? You're ruining your health, you're ruining your family, you're ruining yourself financially for a lottery ticket. Is that really what you want? So it's super individual. Some people, the answer is clearly yes, I know I'm right, I know it's gonna work, or I wanna look back one day, my, my first product I ever built was uh, the check-in kiosks that are in the airports. Um, and I was sure, I could pull this thing off, but it is the impact part. It is nice. Yes, we did make money. And then we sold the company um, uh, for a nine-figure exit. But it's nice to walk to the airport and see people at kiosks checking in and not waiting in line and be able to say, for whatever your idea was, I helped change my industry. So there's a lot of drivers there. It's a very personal decision. Um, and you really need to introspect uh, before you put everyone and everything at risk. One more question. Um... I hear a lot of pitches and sometimes I wonder like, what are you thinking? Um, a lot <laughs> of like, what, like, what, like, it just doesn't make sense. And a lot of people don't make it and I could tell why they don't make it. Yep. Right. And, and what is it, you know, that, that you look at someone, this person is going to make it and that person just doesn't have it or should okay. be doing it. Right. Okay. Interestingly, because sometimes people think I'm going to say, or that you and I are going to say, that it's this never give up, never quit, driving determination. I actually think that's a problem. I run into too many entrepreneurs whose business is not working. And they're like, well, you know what they say, never give up. I was like, dude, no one is ever going to buy this product. Give up. Go do something else with your life. So that's not it. It's not that I will never quit determination because I've had some bad ideas that when the world and the data told me they were bad ideas, I shut them down. It's not that. For me, it's this, uh, it's more of an EQ than an IQ. It's their ability. Are they listeners? Are they looking for opportunities to learn from people that have been there before them? Do they recognize that they don't know everything? Are they smart enough to realize there's a lot of people smarter than them that they need to bring on their team? So I listen to much more of their human skill set. Can they communicate? By the way, there have been some, in fact, one of my favorite ones was I met the guy, you might remember this product. I met the guy many, many years ago uh, that created the pet rock, which was a product. Yeah, yeah, I and he's that. like, when I met him, he said, 
basically picked up rocks, took a marker, drew a smiley face on them and, and made millions of dollars. And he's like, that's because I'm super good at marketing. So even bad ideas that are well communicated and well presented and well marketing win. Brilliant ideas with horrible marketing don't. So we look at, do they or someone on their team have the ability to tell their story? So those are all the things, communication skills, people skills, empathy, their overall EQ. When I see all that stuff, I'm like, this guy, this girl, she's going to figure this out. She's going to align herself with the right people. She's going to bring the right people to the team. That's almost more important because you and I can fix a bad idea. We can take a business plan and make changes to it, but we can't rewrite your DNA. So, so I'm I'll, 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 tell, I'll tell what I would, I think made me successful. Number one, I practice business. So I practiced selling and didn't matter if it was not going to get it. <clears throat> I, I practiced calling. I'd put in offers, not where was it going to be accepted or not, because I could always back out if I did. So I just practice, right? And the more I practiced what is it that I was doing, then when it was game time, it was a lot easier or I became desensitized to the word no and I didn't get offended. Number two, I became very good at building, but also learning how to monetize relationship by adding value to other people first. And I, I felt like, you know, when I first started speaking and now I speak all over the world, like people would just message all the promoters. Can I speak? Can I speak? Can I speak? And they get a hundred of those, right? And so what I did is like, hey, I'd like to feature you on my show. I had a syndicated radio show at the time, three people listening, but doesn't matter. <laughs> and I would add value to them or connect them with other people. And when you add value to someone first, it's easier to get into the door. Here's a, a 99 yeah. people asking for me something. And here's this one person giving me something. And then there's a natural reciprocation of, of success. Number three, very loyal, 24-7, 365. I think it's a huge flaw. I think everybody thinks they're loyal, but they're not. They're loyal to the opportunity and do shady shit. They get upset and then they just don't, they don't remember why they got where they are. You know, I had a coach that betrayed me, right? And that's, we'll get to the fourth one for me is coaching. I wouldn't be where I am. I paid over $3 million in coaching over the next 10 years. And I remember I put myself in debt and I wouldn't recommend anybody to do that, but I just needed someone do this, do this, do this, do this. Uh -huh. And then I did it and it worked right now. If you hire a donkey, then who hasn't made it, then you're going to get donkey results. But these are people that are very successful. And I realized that all my problems were more like people problems, uh, more like this. I'm having feeling this. They weren't like step one, step two. It was more like, I'm going to this relationship. You know, Jeff is upset at me. And I don't think I did anything wrong. How should I handle it? And they'd be like, well, what did you say? I said, this, 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 this. And when I went to them, I always said, here's what I said. Here's what they said. Here's what I think. Here's what Jeff thinks. Okay. Because if I go to, to my coaches, I can sway them to say, no, JT, you're right, because I want them to agree. I always right. go to my coaches. What am I doing? What is my role in this responsibility where I'm wrong that he feels that way, right? Because I, I, you know, I yeah. can convince anyone to see my view. And I think that and because the question is, do you want to be right or do you want to get it right? And I exactly. wanted to get it right, not be right as well. And lastly, marketing and branding. Branding gives you that credibility, which is easier to build relationships, get clients. And marketing is what creates the economy. If your business is based on referrals, it means you're good at what you do. So the marketing created the machine. So that, to me, is how that I break is, down. That is an absolutely phenomenal list. Um, I didn't have, the. in fact, for probably the first time ever this year, I'm actually taking on a limited number of coaching clients. I'm actually coaching some people because I realized how much of a difference that would have made if only I had a coach. I would avoid a lot of expenses. But I, I, I want to say one more thing quickly, because I love that you said that. I was on the phone one day, and I'll just tell you how it came to me. 
I was on the phone one day. I, I mentor a lot of, uh, as you do, a lot of athletes and entertainers. And I was on the phone that day with Derek Jeter. And Derek and I were talking and he said, Jeff, I got to go. I got to go to a practice. And I was like, aren't you like one of the best baseball players in the history of baseball? And saying that jokingly, like, why would you need to practice? You're Derek Jeter. And he's like, no, I'm one of the best players because I practice every day. And then he said, so I got to go to practice. And I said, kind of jokingly, JT, I said, yeah, Derek, me too. And he laughed. I said, why is that funny? He said, you don't practice. And I hung up the phone and I said, I wish I had known it like, like you do. I said, maybe I should practice. Why wouldn't you practice business the same way? So I love that you pointed out that you literally practice sales calls because most people don't think of themselves that way. I didn't until that day. When I hung up with Derek, I said, he's good because he practices his craft. How can I practice my craft of business and get better and better on it? And ever since that day, like you, I would do things that are literally practice. I hope people listening are getting the point from both of us about practicing the same way an athlete. Or once we did a tour with Beyonce, and she does two and a half hours worth of vocal exercises every day. You're, you'd be thinking, Beyonce doesn't need vocal lessons. That's how you get to be her, because she still does her vocal lessons every single day. Practice. No, no, people want to start a business, and day two, they're millionaires, right? That's yeah, the, right. Because on social media, it's, it, it's where, and so my point to you is that if you don't, there's like the analogy of why I thought, if I don't practice all week and I show up on Sunday for game day, then I start off slow, I, you know, I'm not in the zone. And at the end of the, the, the thing, I, I then become successful, right? But I didn't win because I was <laughs> playing catch up. So why not nail it from the start? So ladies and gentlemen, that's Jeff Hoffman. You can check him out at his um, website, jeffhoffman.com. Uh, is there anything you want to say on a final word? Uh, fascinating guy. And I know we do a lot of amazing stuff. We have a lot of similar. And by the way, Jeff, will you admit this was one of your best interviews. You're right. Absolutely. You ask all the good and important questions. Well, because I do business, right? I don't pretend to. Yes. Do I like that. It's you're drilling straight down to the, what are the things we can share with people that will help them win at business? That's And also too, if you want to know the history of priceline.com, there's a Wikipedia page. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I was saying, like, I hate when people go to Richard Branson, like, how did Virgin start? I'm like, really dude, 16 <laughs> books about the topic. You know what I mean? And is uh, 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 the boat, you know what I mean? Like I've heard that story 4,000 times. And, and I think it's a lack of situational awareness that sometimes people have, but um, so any final words you want to give to every people, the billions and trillions of people that are listening today? Um, I, you know, I <laughs> for all the trillions of people, I think that you heard a lot of extremely practical advice. And I guess my closing comment would be this. A lot of times people go to an event, hear a speaker or listen to a show like this, and take a bunch of notes, they have great intent, and then they go back to what they were doing before. The difference between the world's most successful people and everyone else is not necessarily that they were smarter at all, it's that they executed. When they took notes and listened and learned, they said, I'm gonna start doing this tonight. So that's all I can, I think that's what I can end you with. We gave you a lot of tips, actually do these things. Yeah, do it, do it, and, and here's a little secret. I always tell people, whatever you listen to this, you should listen three times because the first time you're entertained, the second time take notes, the third time say, oh, I'm going to apply this to my business because now if you do this enough times, I can listen to once and get a lot of ideas, right? It takes 25 times and that's part of the practicing. Most people, they have what brain leaky buckets, right? And, it, <laughs> yes. and it, right, and so they'll put in and they're like, wow, that was, that was great, you know? But, you know, so hey, listen, if you like this interview, uh, please make sure that you like, leave a comment, subscribe, wherever uh, you're, you're, you're going this as well, but also share it because this is a real business. 
conversation from someone who has made it and dropped some cool names like Microsoft CEO, which could have been a whole conversation about exactly how that company turned around. Steve Ballmer, stagnant, all of a sudden Nutella comes in, turns it around and they're all into everything. That's a fascinating story about the turnaround of Microsoft. And people don't talk about it. They just take it for granted that Microsoft's been there, but it was stagnant for 10 years. These are the conversations that will make you a better entrepreneur, but don't say, oh, I'm not a Microsoft. I'm not a Priceline. I'm not his business. You take from other businesses and you apply it to your own and something that is common as dirt in one industry can have the effect of an atom bomb. That is Jeff Adam who dropped some real bombs here. (laughs) Uh, to take somebody else's terms on another show. Thank you so much, Jeff. You are absolutely amazing. Can't wait to do this again and again and again. So make sure you check them out. Thank you.